Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics, coming up. Ontario's Auditor General criticizes the province's response to the pandemic. The Auditor General's job is not to be the Chief Medical Officer, not to be the Ombudsman, not to sit there and give us health advice, which I've always said there's a big problem with an accountant that starts giving me health advice. Mexico's ambassador responds to comments from conservatives in the House of Commons. So what the minister is saying is that Mexicans will get vaccinated before Canadians. And the federal government tables a bill that would legalize single event sports betting. Brian Mast, the Windsor NDP MP, has been pushing this as a private member's bill for years. And suddenly the government is listening. And I think it's because Canada's casinos have been ravaged by the pandemic. It's Thursday, November 26th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. Morning, Mark. So Ontario's Auditor General has been very critical of the province's response to the pandemic, and I think this is emblematic of a few things, and, and Ontario's probably not the only jurisdiction where this has happened, but it's clear that in the early days of this crisis, and perhaps even more recently, Governments didn't know what to do. They didn't have a playbook for a a pandemic of this scale and an event of this magnitude. Yeah, I think that's right, Mark. Most governments were caught unprepared that uh, lessons from the SARS outbreak, for example, in 2003 were not learned. Uh, New policies were not implemented. Uh, There was confusing leadership initially and you know, I mean, I think when the federal governor general, uh, auditor general looks at this next spring, she will find something similar. Nobody's going to come out of this particularly well because the scale of the problem was was unprecedented. Uh, the, the Ontario auditor general suggested that public health in other provinces like British Columbia, Alberta and Quebec was more organised. But uh, we know from the second wave that uh, all of those provinces have, have had their challenges. So, yeah, I don't think that a close examination of how governments responded is going to reflect very well in any government. And I think one of the questions that that arises out of this is, in these circumstances, ultimately, who should be in charge and who should be leading the the response to an event like this? Uh, should it be public health officials? Should it be government bureaucrats? Should it be politicians? And, and we've seen at different times uh, the emphasis in different areas. And and in different jurisdictions, the public health officials have been more front and center than in others. And and I think there there may be some lessons that will arise from that. Right. I mean, uh, the Ontario Auditor General was very critical of Dr. David Williams, who was the Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, saying he didn't fully exercise his powers under the under the uh, Health Protection Act. But ultimately, Williams and and other chief medical officers are. Advisors, they're advising the politicians, and that's as it should be. And I do think that perhaps the Auditor General in Ontario stepped out of her, her lane a little bit by saying, by criticizing the uh, the political response. I mean, these are political decisions. All provincial governments are caught between this weighing the balance on lives and livelihoods. And you know, you might be critical of of that Ford raised the bar too high before. Going, going to lockdown, but but these are political decisions, and they will be held. Politicians will be held accountable at the ballot box at the next election. 
All right, let's turn to the issue of vaccines. There's been a lot of discussion over the last couple of days about the fact that Canada may not get the vaccines as early as other countries because we don't have vaccines manufactured in this country right now. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the opposition yesterday uh, and the day before raised the fact that Mexico may get vaccines before Canada. That prompted a response from the Mexican ambassador to Canada uh, so uh, let's talk first about the issue, and we can talk as well about the politicization of it. But first, the issue itself. What should Canadians be thinking right now in the context of when they'll be receiving the vaccine and whether this was this was a, pro- a problem uh, that the government didn't have, wasn't sufficiently prepared for this? Well, I don't think we know all the facts yet. And I think the government is very nervous about us learning all the facts. You know, remember when the opposition sent the whole COVID issue to the health committee and the government was very loath to do that because it said it would reveal commercial confidences with the with the vaccine makers. Well, I think the main commercial confidence they're worried about is the fact that it will likely show that uh, Canada is down the line when it comes to receiving those vaccines. I mean, it does look like now that the EU, for example, is talking about vaccinating people in December. So is the US, so is the UK. I think the one area that Canada is, is extremely liable for criticism, or the, the government is liable for criticism, is that it does have a manufacturing facility in Montreal owned by the National Research Council, which can produce vaccines. And I think it's going to emerge that we put all our eggs in the wrong basket when we signed a deal with the Chinese to produce what was looking like a promising vaccine. And in August, the government announced that 250,000 doses a month would be produced in Montreal, of this vaccine. And then the Chinese refused to play ball by sending us the material we needed to make that vaccine. So suddenly Canada is left without a vaccine. Other countries, including India, Australia, Mexico, as you mentioned, Brazil, Russia, all signed deals with AstraZeneca to uh, licensing agreements to produce vaccine in their own countries. And the whole argument, obviously, is that if you produce a vaccine in your country, you're going to give it to your own citizens first. That seems to be what's what's uh, happening in the U.S. So Canada was left without a vaccine contender. Then the facility, turns out, is is not compliant with the regulations. And we are nowhere near having a, va- a, a, a vaccine produced in Canada, available in Canada. And it might, you know, the, the quantities might not be in the millions that, that are required to vaccinate everybody, but every dose of vaccine is potentially a life save. And if these were emergency measures or emergency doses, they could be given to the people who are in the front lines, health professionals, uh, seniors in long-term care homes, etc. So I think there is a story still to be told here. I think it will emerge that the government has, has made some poor decisions. Uh, maybe we will have to wait to the Auditor General's report in the spring to find that out. But um, yeah, I think that, that vaccines is a very tricky issue and Canadians this is a panacea. I mean, literally a panacea to many people. And if they start seeing countries, the US, the UK receiving them, people are going to be extremely mad. If they start seeing India, Mexico, Brazil, Russia, the citizens there receiving vaccine, and we're still waiting, this is a potentially existential moment for this government. Let's talk about the politics of it, though, because there has been some criticism of how the opposition, the Conservatives in particular, have handled this issue invoking Mexico and, and so on. What do you think about that? Well, I think that, you know, the opposition is doing what the opposition does, and that's criticise the government performance. And I think in this area, 
there may be things, something to criticise. I mean, the government has not revealed the, the terms of these of the agreements that it's signed. Now, I think Canada is well positioned compared to other countries when it comes to the number of doses. Trudeau mentioned in the House of Commons yesterday that we have got more doses per capita than any any other um, any other country. I mean, at Bloomberg ranked access to vaccines in Canada was has fifth highest ranking out of all countries. So I think over time. Uh, Canadians will be well served by the deals that the government has done. But there's no... The number of doses and the speed with which those doses are received are two different things. And I think that that is where the opposition parties are going to have uh, are going to have more success. Uh, Yves uh, Francois Blanchet, the bloc leader, said exactly that. You know, these are two different things. The number of doses and the speed at which we get them are two different things. Right. And their access to... Speedy access... To, uh, to the vaccine is what is going to hurt this government most, I think. All right, finally, let's turn to the issue of single-event sports betting. Um, why is the federal government getting into this area at this time? Well, this is something that the government, of the Liberal Party in particular, has resisted for, for many years. I mean, it's been on the books. Uh, Brian Mass, the, uh, the Windsor NDP MP, has been pushing this as a private member's bill for years. And suddenly the government is listening, and I think it's because Canada's casinos have been ravaged by by the pandemic. Single game sports betting uh, has not been available in Canada officially. Um, if you wanted to to make a bet, you had to make a parlay bet, which meant betting on multiple events at once. Uh, there was objections from the U.S., where single game betting was limited to Nevada. The, the professional sports leagues were opposed to it, fearing that it might encourage match fixing. But the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the federal law that restricted single-game betting to Nevada in 2018. The Professional Sports League have dropped their opposition to it, saying this is a new revenue source. And so Canada's now looking like an outlier. It's it's, uh, seen its casino towns being devastated by pandemic, and this is seen as a potential solution to that. I think it fits very well into their view of legalizing pot. Because while they weren't trying to encourage people to take, there was a black market and people were doing it anyway. So why not regulate it and take some of the revenues from it? And they've kind of done this. It looks like they're going to do the same thing here. Provinces will regulate single-game sports betting and take a cut of the proceeds, which which seems fair enough to me because people were doing it anyway. You know, the market is massive. The, The estimate was $14 billion a year. $4 $4 billion a year of which was was through uh, offshore betting sites, yeah. which, you know, why not um, the federal go- or the provincial governments do it instead? So I think uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty smart move, essentially recognizing the reality that's out there already. All right, John, great to have your comments on all of this today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. These restrictions are not about our preferences, they're not about politics, they're not about abstractions, they are about protecting both people's lives and the livelihoods that they depend on. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Globe and Mail, Gary Mason argues Jason Kenney's response to COVID-19 was weeks too late. Mason writes, When the history of the country's response to COVID-19 is written, there will surely be a chapter devoted to the Alberta government's bewildering and in many ways grossly negligent response to handling the crisis. 
In the end, the premier could no longer ignore the growing chorus demanding he set aside his personal ideologies and do something about the raging fire threatening to consume the entire province. In the Toronto Star, Bob Hepburn argues politicians must step away from the microphone. Hepburn writes, Our politicians have made a mess of communicating with the public about lockdowns, openings and closings, second wave preparations, and next steps in dealing with the pandemic. Often inconsistent, often in conflict with health experts, and often without clear explanation of why expert advice was rejected. A huge part of public health is communications, and it's best done by scientists and doctors, not by politicians. In the Ottawa Citizen, Terry Glavin argues Canada's China policy is still a shambles. Glavin writes, Foreign Affairs Minister François-Philippe Champagne gives the impression that something is being done, when in fact nothing is in the offing. So we're all left to hope that U.S. President-elect Joe Biden can lead the liberal democratic world into some sort of consensus about how to deal with the Chinese Communist Party, and that Canada will at least quietly go along. In the meantime, don't expect any leadership from the federal government. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Senate Committee on Legal and Constitutional Affairs will hear from the Federal Minister for Disability Inclusion today as it holds special hearings into the Trudeau government's new medical assistance in dying legislation. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark, the Senate committee already heard from Health Minister Patty Haidu yesterday and we'll hear from Disabilities Inclusion Minister Carla Qualtrill today. The Trudeau government is trying to get its new medical assistance in dying legislation passed through both the House of Commons and the Senate by December 18th. The bill is currently being studied at the same time by both the House of Commons Justice Committee and undergoing what's called pre-study in the Senate committee. The reason is the deadline set by the court, which has already given two extensions to the government. The new legislation had to address a Quebec court ruling which struck down part of the previous law, legislation which required that people to avail themselves of medical assistance in dying must have a reasonably foreseeable death. The court found that that requirement was unconstitutional, so it's no longer in the new legislation. But the question is whether the government will be able to meet the deadline. There seems to be fairly broad, multi-party support, with the exception of some Conservative MPs in the House of Commons. But the Senate has heard from a number of faith and disability rights groups who have raised issues with the legislation. So, Mark, it'll be interesting to see both the testimony as well as the countdown to the government's very tight time frame. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will host a call with provincial and territorial premiers and Minister of Small Business, Mary Ng, will give the keynote speech at the 40th anniversary celebration for the Trade Facilitation Office of Canada. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, November the 26th. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.